the doctor, they got trouble, and I didn't know what to do. They gathered themselves together and called it Spanish and flu. Wait until I got done one. Welcome back to the podcast. That was Blind Willie Johnson singing Jesus is Coming Soon in 1928. If you didn't catch it from the lyrics, Johnson is singing that the influenza pandemic was caused by the wicked ways of humanity. The song was written looking back on the events we'll cover in today's podcast. So let me set the scene for you. I'd like you to imagine I'm painting a mural. And this is podcasting, so this is a verbal mural. This is a mural of the 1920 presidential election. I get started by filling in the canvas with a single color. This backdrop will be red. This is the red of spilled blood and doomed balance sheets. World War I, at the time called the Great War, had driven the world to the brink, stopping only when all sides were exhausted physically and financially. In the foreground, you'll need to include some towering figures. A president in decline, Woodrow Wilson. A new outsider figure in Warren G. Harding. Less prominent, maybe standing behind these two giants, is a veteran naval officer of the just-concluded First World War named FDR. But if you were painting that mural, you'd struggle to find a color for another force in politics and culture at the time. Because it was actually invisible. It was a malevolence that killed far more people than bullets or artillery. It created havoc that transcended race and class. And by even 1920, it was still a potent force. And I'm of course talking about the influenza epidemic that started in 1918, the so-called Spanish flu, and to virologists today, a strain of H1N1. I'm recording this podcast 100 years after the 1920 election in 2020. In the United States, we're coming to grips with a novel coronavirus that appears to be a global pandemic. It's dominating the news. People are stocking their homes with hand sanitizer and, who knew it, toilet paper. At the same time, the United States is entering a contentious presidential election. I wanted to get topical with the Tinderbox podcast, call it our 100-year anniversary of an ailing presidential election. My original question as I did my research was this, what effect did the Spanish flu have on politics at the time? As I researched, I started to find interesting stories about brinksmanship, chaos, and pandemonium. You know, the usual. People acting like jerks, politicians taking advantage of crisis, and general bedlam. This is all our bread and butter here at the Tinderbox Podcast. The events covered in this podcast called Outfluenza will have all the hallmarks of a great presidential election. Insiders and outsiders, winners and losers, and arguments over ideas. As a side note, Influenza was the name of a nursery rhyme about the pandemic. This podcast deals with the tail end of that, so we're calling it Outfluenza. But go back to your mural for a second. Crisscrossing this mural, maybe using invisible ink, was the Spanish flu. The players in the election of 1920, from the average citizen to the men running for office, all still lived in fear of the creeping menace of the Spanish flu. Influenza will actually be a character in our story. And as a character, the Spanish flu is a villain, most definitely. The flu's motives are simple. Infect, spread, and if need be, kill. As a villain, it really ranks up there because you can't reason with it. It recklessly perpetuates itself and seems to be unstoppable in many ways. And we can't even call the Spanish flu a living thing. Unlike a bear ready to eat you, there's no relating to it. Biologically, viruses don't play by the rules that the rest of life plays by. 
they're kind of devilish. So sit back as I paint every thread of our canvas with an invisible demonic dye. Let's get started on Outfluenza right after this ad break. Tinderbox is fun to produce. Support this podcast by going to www.storefrontier.com slash tinderbox. Again, storefrontier.com slash tinderbox. There you'll find our custom clothing design celebrating the non-aligned GI ticket of the Battle of Athens. If you've listened to our original podcast series counted as cast, you know the Vote GI slogan by heart already. On Store Frontier, you can get a t-shirt for those humid August nights when you need to storm the local jail, or get a hoodie for that November election when you need to inform everyone that all votes will be counted as cast. Again, go to storefrontier.com tinderbox. Every purchase helps us pay the bills. In his re-election campaign in 1916, American President Woodrow Wilson had promised he wouldn't bring the country into World War I. The war, which started two years prior in November of 1914, had drawn in all the major powers. Nobody had ever seen a conflict like this before. Machine guns and trenches started to populate battlefields across Europe. Wilson promised America not to get involved, saying, I quote, It is a war with which we have nothing to do, whose causes cannot touch us, end quote. America had nothing to do with a Serbian activist shooting a duke in 1914. We were all the way across the ocean. Not our problem. In the history of broken campaign promises, which is a pretty long list, Wilson's probably ranks up there. But America's population grudgingly accepted our involvement soon after Woodrow Wilson took the presidency for the second time. Germany didn't exactly do themselves any favors, though. They'd prodded us. They had submarines sinking U.S. boats. They tried to agitate Mexico against the United States. All this was a bridge too far. Woodrow Wilson made the case to Congress that Germany had asked for it. He told Congress in April 1917, a few months after starting that second term, that a war to end all wars had to commence. Germany was out of control. I want you to imagine the president standing in front of Congress, maybe during the State of the Union. Wilson came from academia, the first president to hold a Ph.D., In pictures, his long face and glasses kind of give him a professorial air even now a century later. But Wilson was also a competent politician. In his speech, he framed entry into the war as the noblest cause of all. Quote, We have no selfish ends to serve. We desire no conquest, no dominion, no material compensation for the sacrifices we shall freely make. We are but one of the champions of the rights of mankind. We shall be satisfied when those rights have been made as secure as the faith and freedom nations can make of them. Congress approved. War was on. But in April of 1917, as Wilson reneged on his campaign promise, America wasn't even remotely ready to fight in Europe. The German army was millions strong and battle-hardened. They had bloodied the nose of the French and British, two of the greatest powers in Europe, and had been bloodied themselves. Russia, well, we won't even get into Russia. America needed military mobilization and needed it now. If your family is like mine, mobilizing a dozen people at something like Thanksgiving or another family gathering is slow, involves a lot of bickering and side discussions, and probably some heckling. Now imagine mobilizing millions to go kill or be killed in the trenches of Europe. This task required the screening of 10 million American men, about half of whom eventually ended up enlisted. A trickle of men taking ships eastward to the front needed to increase, and fast. Wilson put Secretary of War Newton D. Baker in charge of this incredibly complex task. Mobilizing an army was hard enough as it was, 
but he also had to ship them hundreds of miles through submarine infested waters, and that made it even more difficult. President Wilson had faith in his Secretary of War, though. On the other hand, Secretary Baker didn't seem to have much faith in himself. He actually said that, quote, I am innocent. I do not know anything about this job, end quote. That's a great way to start. Baker wasn't a military man. He didn't come from a military background and had attended no military school. But once, when asked about his stance on war, he said something that I think summed up his character. Quote, I'm so much of a pacifist, I'm willing to fight for it, end quote. As mobilization increased through the end of 1917 and into 1918, the secretary came under heavy criticism by Congress. At issue was the conditions of the many forts dotting America and the men who were in them. So let me explain this for a second. Mobilization of an army requires local work. Recruiters canvassed urban centers and the hinterlands of the U.S. looking for good people to be in the army. Remember, this was back when the United States was much more spread out and when urban centers were much smaller. Not all those forts were made equal either. Troops stuffed themselves into crowded barracks, mealtimes were elbow-to-elbow affairs, and this is where the problems begun. If you've ever worked in a public building, maybe a school or a library or an airport, you know how quickly disease can spread. Troops had not even shipped out to the war front before they were getting sick. It was really one high-profile death that kicked off the political turmoil that embroiled Secretary Baker. Few people at the time were as obsessed with military preparedness as 52-year-old Major Augustus P. Gardner of Massachusetts. When war broke out, he enlisted and brought his wealth of experience from the Spanish-American War to bear. He was a double threat, as they say. He also had the skill that all politicians need, namely oratory. As war began to ramp up in Europe in October of 1914, he started to get pretty angry. He said, and I quote, For a dozen years I have sat here like a coward in silence and listened while men have told us how the United States can safely depend on the state militia and the naval reserve. All this time I knew it was not true. The belief in this country that we can create an army and a navy when the need arises is wrong from beginning to end. You can't improvise a battleship or a submarine or a torpedo or a sailor after war breaks out, end quote. And in Major Gardner's most inspired line, he said, Wake up, America! Isn't that great? Anyway, Major Gardner, guru of military preparedness, collapsed at the rifle range of Camp Wheeler in Macon, Georgia. Thanks for the pronunciation help on that. In days, a case of rapid pneumonia killed him. The irony wasn't lost on Congress. Remember, they're trying to go after Baker, who said, I do not know anything about this job. Congress responded immediately. Major Gardner was actually the son of Henry Cabot Lodge. I know this is a lot of names, but you'll want to remember Henry Cabot Lodge because he was a Republican congressman of immense clout. Congress started investigations. After all, 1918 was a midterm re-election year. And someone like Lodge was interested in what was going to happen in November of 1918. So, as they do, Congress started investigations. Secretary of War Baker had to answer for the death of a high-profile representative who had ferociously defended military preparedness. The Department of War had a lot more to answer for as well. Gardner wasn't the only person who had gone down. Men died in bungled hospital care. Bodies of dead soldiers were mishandled. Mothers of dead soldiers demanded answers, wanting to know why their sons had died of meningitis and pneumonia without firing a shot. 
Secretary Baker sat in the hot seat in front of Congress in late January of 1918 to answer questions about these complaints of negligence. The Senate accused him of falling down on the job. He replied to them that, quote, it would be a tragical thing if this tremendous mobilization effort, this wholly unprecedented sacrifice made by men, were in fact to turn out to deserve the comment that it had fallen down, end quote. There's a New York Times article that actually outlines what Baker had said. He had a lot of excuses. There was tons of excuses for problems in these forts. And while extensive and drawn out, these excuses did not stop what happened in March of 1918. A company cook in Fort Riley in Kansas came down with a serious fever that left him bedridden and deadly ill. There's a problem. 54,000 men prepped for the war front in Fort Riley. Within days, hundreds of men had the same flu. Within a month, over a thousand lay in hospital beds. Some identify that company Cook as patient zero in the influenza outbreak that would soon take over the world. Now, I'm not just pointing fingers at Secretary Baker. This is war. This is where people die. That is why war is terrible. There are all kinds of unknown consequences. But it's also disputed whether the Spanish flu started in Kansas at all. One recent scientific study marshals evidence to say that the Spanish flu started in France, but again with soldiers billeted in close quarters with pigs and birds nearby. One thing is undisputed. Putting people in close quarters breeds disease, and no nation was prepared. The flu spread among American infantry. It spread among the British expeditionary forces. It spread amongst the French army. It spread to the Germans. Officers on both sides canceled planned offensives. Fleets went to dry dock for lack of sailors. It gained the name Spanish Flu when it struck Spain like a sledgehammer on a ten-penny nail, killing thousands and bringing low King Alfonso XIII. Squalid conditions, poor hygiene, and the general chaos of the end of the Great War gave the virus plenty of opportunity to spread. Stateside, the virus went on a relentless advance. In September of 1918, Philadelphia had organized a patriotic parade designed to spur interest in government bonds financing the war. John Philip Sousa himself marched in the parade. Here's a composition you might know, the Washington Post. Over 200,000 people showed up to the parade and... I believe they sold quite a few war bonds. The huge public gathering also enabled rapid spread of the virus. Within days, every hospital in town was out of beds. In a week, 2,600 people had died in Philadelphia. So here you see the virus is spreading among the public back home as well as on the war front. But then to make matters worse, American troops returned home after the November 1918 armistice, and they brought the virus with them. Heartfelt homecomings turned sour. Returning soldiers were a vector for the disease, and it all became distressing enough that a Boston newspaper warned that, quote, girls of Boston must cut out that germy kiss, end quote. One naval poster designed to stop displays of affection for the returning men said, quote, avoid the hug, avoid the lip, escape the bug that gives the grip, end quote. The grip was at the time one of the names of respiratory disease. Yeah, this was all funny, except when it gave way to mass fatalities. More U.S. soldiers had been killed by the Spanish flu than enemy action. In a peculiar mutation as well, Spanish flu struck young adults particularly hard, and young men even worse. 
Some communities suffered as high as one in five fatalities. You never really knew if you were in a community that would end up with minor cases or be a community cleaved apart by influenza. Tens of thousands were dying. The Washington Post claimed in the fall of 1918 that at the true peak of the disease, they had 40 deaths a day to report. Post facto, people blame Woodrow Wilson for an anemic response to the crisis. Some of the federal government statements on the crisis are milquetoast enough that you'd think they were commenting on a golf game. Around the world, though, country after country had caught the bug, and they all suffered. The war sputtered on and off after the armistice, restarting, then going calm. But the world war was out of gas. Millions had died in the war. Now millions more were dying on the home front from the disease. Peace talks started in Versailles in early 1919, when one-third of the world's population, yes, I do mean everybody, had either lived through, died from, or currently had the flu. Soldiers at Camp Meade, no longer fighting the war, instead built coffins. Woodrow Wilson reported to those Versailles peace talks, a little nervous. The Democrat Party had not done well in the midterm elections of 1918. Henry Cabot Lodge and the Republicans had stolen a few seats and now had the majority, both in the House and the Senate. This meant the president was losing ground in terms of his own leadership and his party's leadership of the government. Wilson was also apprehensive because he had big, ambitious plans for the peace talks at Versailles. Do yourself a favor and look up a picture of Versailles just to give you an idea of the environment that this peace talk was going on in. The palace of King Louis probably was blanketed in snow on and off. In January of 1919, when they were all shivering, I'm sure, inside of Versailles, Wilson outlined a 14-point peace plan. Let's go through all 14 points. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Please don't turn the podcast off. Let me give you the upshot. In the 14 points, Wilson described a peace framework for embattled nations of the World War. He wanted to restore stolen territories, safeguard them from being taken again, and smooth out European grudges. Yeah, good luck with that. They're only a few thousand years old, right? Anyway, Wilson's plan was intended as a starting point, and it's ambitious. It's good. I mean, who doesn't like ambition? His plan spared Germany retribution, which is interesting. It really sounded like Wilson didn't hold any grudges against the Germans. I quote, We have no jealousy of German greatness, and there is nothing in this 14 points program that impairs it. We grudge her no achievement or distinction of learning or of Pacific enterprises such as it made her record very bright and very enviable. We do not wish to injure her or block in any way her legitimate influence or power. End quote. Wilson saw the peace conference in Versailles as a way to usher in new systems of managing state power. In addition to the 14 points, he'd conceived of a League of Nations that would assist the rest of the nations in creating peace around the world. It would do this by creating a suicide pact, though he didn't call it that, obviously. That's podcaster editorializing. Anyway, it worked like this. If a nation in the League came under attack, the others were obligated to respond. This concept is called collective security. Now, from a personal standpoint, I don't really buy the idealism. It was all those treaty obligations that started World War I in the first place, all caused by one anarchist with a pistol. But I digress. At Versailles, Wilson spent months in verbal combat with the leaders and negotiators of the other nations, particularly France, which had suffered the worst of the war. Wilson fought hard. He was even accused of being a German spy when he shot down the idea of reparations. 
As a moderate voice, Wilson wanted to keep the world from experiencing another outburst of violence. It's hard to look today at Versailles outside the lens of World War II. I just got done saying that this whole Versailles conference was based off of Wilson's hippy-dippy 14 points plan. So what gives? Wasn't Hitler's rise to power based off of grievances against the other European powers? Didn't I hear that back in high school? How did a laid-back peace plan like this get turned on its head? Well, the great man model of history says that the march of history has to do with the personalities of a small number of movers and shakers. Very intriguing. Woodrow Wilson was an important man in an important moment. My model of historical interpretation also includes non-human intelligences, demonic little intelligences called viruses. Wilson had an agenda which he called peace without victory at Versailles. But the flu has simple needs and desires. It didn't care and doesn't care about politics or peace. In April 1919, like so many around the world in the spring of 1919, Woodrow Wilson came down with a fever of 103. He was barely able to make it to some of the most important sessions in the peace conference. His personal doctor tried to calm the press and ordered him to bed rest. But Spanish flu had struck. Now, I should note that Wilson hadn't ever had the strongest constitution. His biography is full of maladies. As a child, some speculate he suffered from a stroke, being unable to read until he was nine. As a teen, he complained of digestive issues, and as a young adult, suffered from nervous system problems. He always persevered, though. Wilson learned to write left-handed when his right hand stopped working, and he often found solace in prayer. But influenza in 1919 took him down at the worst possible time and his already lousy health probably made the outcome even worse. The man with the vision for a grand world order of peace and security lay in bed near death. A power vacuum opened at the peace conference. Wilson tried to get well as quickly as possible, but it seems to me that ideas are only as powerful as the people who have them and can speak for them. I'm sure Wilson knew he had to recover and do it soon. He needed to dive back into the arena and regain the momentum. But here's one of the insidious secrets about the influenza virus, particularly this 1918 pandemic version. The disease wasn't something that passed through you. You didn't just get sick, spend some days or weeks in bed, and then throw yourself back into your normal routine. Woodrow Wilson likely, and I say likely because we're doing history here and we can only rely on secondary reports, he likely suffered neurological effects from the disease long after it had run its course. Those surrounding him reported paranoia. He began to refuse to speak around raiders and butlers, housekeepers and helpers, explaining to colleagues that he believed the French waitstaff pretended not to know English. They were, Wilson said, actually spying on him for the French. When he wasn't worrying about spies, he was sluggish and exhausted with a persistent mental fog. Even his handwriting changed. French negotiators must have smelled blood. They pounced and pushed through punishing reparations. The French wanted Germany economically crippled in perpetuity. Throwing off Wilson's original peace without victory idealism, the French convinced the exhausted and confused Wilson and the rest of the negotiating powers to crack down on Germany with severe reparations. I can't really blame the French for this. They had suffered the most, but we all know how crushing Germany with those reparations turned out. On the other hand, Woodrow Wilson did get his League of Nations. He, in fact, won a Nobel Peace Prize for leading that gesture towards world peace. The League formed and waited for nations to sign on the dotted line. But when he got home, sick and tired, Wilson didn't find America clamoring to get involved. 
Many were already sour on the league, and we hadn't even gotten into it yet. Congressional Republicans, led by Henry Cabot Lodge, refused to sign any treaty bringing the United States into the fold of the league. Remember, this is the same Henry Cabot Lodge who had lost a son-in-law to disease in the U.S. military encampments. So, Henry Cabot Lodge, Wilson's arch-enemy in Congress. Lodge gave speeches through one of those enormous old-school Civil War-style mustaches. Here's a clip of a speech from him talking about the League of Nations. I am as anxious as any human being can be to have the United States render every possible service to the civilization and the peace of mankind. But I am certain that we can do it best by not putting ourselves in leading strings or subjecting our policies and our sovereignty to other nations. Lodge saw a fatal flaw in the League of Nations Charter. It usurped congressional control over declaring war. The Treaty of Versailles, if ratified by Congress, would force America to answer a call to arms over and above Congress itself. Lodge was a congressman and he didn't want to give up power because, according to the United States Constitution, only Congress can declare war. The Treaty of Versailles, if ratified by Congress, would force America to answer a call to arms over and above their authority. Lodge gathered allies to his cause and put a full-court press on Wilson. The president's baby, the League of Nations, was about to get thrown out with the bathwater. Even though he'd struggled to recover from illness, and likely against the wishes of his doctor, Woodrow Wilson hit the road in September of 1919. Back in Washington, D.C., Henry Cabot Lodge was getting ready to get discussion on the Treaty of Versailles to vote in the Capitol. Lodge intended to tear apart the treaty, accepting it only in part, in a set of so-called reservations. Wilson had to get the word out about his proposal for a new world order. Summoning all his energy, Wilson took trains across the Great Plains, crossed the Rockies, and toured the West Coast and every town in between. Few, if any of these towns, hadn't been touched by influenza. On the way, he suffered from splitting headaches, worsening asthma, and he lost his appetite. His wife Edith and his personal doctor Grayson watched him start to waste away. He'd never really recovered from the Spanish flu and now put himself under tremendous stress. If Wilson stretched himself thin, it was because of the enormity of the task. The PR campaign was not going well. When he stopped to give stump speeches, Wilson got heckled by the crowd. Back in Congress, his prospects were not looking good either. Lodge had a solid following now and gathered more by the day. To give you an idea of what Wilson sounded like when he visited everybody across the country to talk about the League of Nations, here he is talking about democratic principles. There never was a time when impatience and suspicion were more keenly aroused by private power selfishly employed. When jealousy of everything concealed or touched with any purpose not linked with the general good or inconsistent with it, more sharply or immediately displayed itself. Nor was the country ever more susceptible to unselfish appeals or to the high arguments of sincere justice. These are the unmistakable symptoms of an awakening. To me, this has a real academic feel to it. Imagine him traveling the heartland, weak and feeble, engaging in academic rhetoric and getting heckled. Do you think it would work today? I'm not so sure. More than just the Treaty of Versailles drove Woodrow Wilson to tour the country. The 1920 election approached, and Woodrow Wilson wanted a third term. 
This all occurred, of course, before FDR actually made a third and then a fourth term possible, and before the 22nd Amendment prohibited it. Just a decade prior, Teddy Roosevelt had notably not sought out a third term and left office as one of the most popular presidents in our history. But I don't think Wilson was in his right mind at this point. His party was in decline in popularity, but still he insisted. Wilson wasn't going to let something like declining popularity stop him from becoming president again. Anyway, Wilson intended to ask his Democrats to renominate him come the summer convention of 1920. The cross-country trip, actually to me, looked like Wilson was out on the campaign trail. The road to the third term wouldn't be that easy, because then the stress caught up with them. Disaster struck. On October 2, 1919, in Pueblo, Colorado, the story goes that Wilson collapsed from stroke. His wife Edith dragged him to bed. Dr. Grayson, his personal physician, announced to Wilson's closest advisors and his wife that the president was paralyzed. The Spanish flu had scarred him, and he'd never fully recover. This began a quiet and careful subterfuge. Edith Wilson began to assume the duties of the president. She guarded him from prying eyes, dictated reply letters, and otherwise kept the show running. She wrote about this perilous time later. When you listen to this quote I'm going to read, it sounds more like she was a chief of staff. Quote, so began my stewardship. I studied every paper sent from different secretaries or senators and tried to digest and present in tabloid form the things that, despite my vigilance, had to go to the president. I myself never made a single decision regarding the disposition of public affairs. The only decision that was mine was what was important and what was not, and the very important decision of when to present matters to my husband, end quote. Historians now think that Edith Wilson took on more responsibility than she ever admitted to. Put simply, they think that she acted as the chief executive of the United States government for months, perhaps the better part of a year. For a time, it kept the White House from falling apart. Mostly paralyzed and suffering from bouts of dementia, Woodrow Wilson could not fight for his ideas anymore. Henry Cabot Lodge slayed the giant. He took down the Treaty of Versailles. The League of Nations would never count the United States as one of its members. You do have to wonder how things would have turned out differently if Wilson, a man who had proved he could persevere in the face of his own health problems, had never contracted the Spanish flu. How would the world have looked different if Wilson had been stronger and able to defeat his congressional rivals? Would we be in the League of Nations? Part of me even has to ask if Wilson had been well and managed to scuttle the reparations against Germany, would we have had a World War II? A little bit of a stretch, but you still have to wonder. President Wilson contracted influenza again in January of 1920, and despite Edith's best efforts, rumors percolated in the press of the president's illness. Discussion began in Congress about whether to usurp Wilson's presidency and hand it to his VP. The vice president refused, saying it needed to be a matter of law and Congress would need to pass a bill. It took until 1967, during the height of the Cold War, and after the chaos following the assassination of JFK, for the 25th Amendment to be ratified by Congress. The 25th Amendment, of course, removes power from the president and invests it in someone else in the event of an emergency. Woodrow Wilson's declining health after his bout of Spanish flu is commonly cited today as a reason to invoke the processes laid out in the 25th Amendment. 1920 arrived quietly. People mourned the dead. The press speculated about the president's health. Congress was on the warpath. Yes, put down that beer, citizen. Legislators had passed the Volstead Act, 
the law that created the prohibition of alcohol, then had it vetoed by a bedridden Wilson only to override his veto with a supermajority. Imagine that, recovering from the horrors of influenza and world war and you can't even have a drink. Prohibitionists everywhere rejoiced. Even without drinks in their hands, Americans started to feel some hope. The country crawled out of the dark hole of pandemic. After the devastating fall of 1918, the spring of 1919 had seen less cases of the flu, but was still knocking people out of society at an alarming rate. By the fall of 1919, when Wilson went on the road, the pace slowed significantly. We might actually be crawling out of this. Sporadic cases of the flu continued, though, and then, in the beginning of 1920, all those optimists despaired. The flu came back with a vengeance. That is one thing about influenza. It is predictably seasonal. Winter ends up breeding the disease at a much higher rate. There's a few reasons for this, and I'm not a doctor. I just play one on a podcast. But seriously, one reason speculated is that people are confined inside during these months and stale air holds the virus. The other theory I've heard is that with an airborne disease, viruses are carried by expelled water particles coming from your sneezing, coughing, breathing self. Since winter is colder, and colder air often means drier air, the water droplets are smaller and can move easier through the environment. Some towns and cities were struck quite hard in 1920, and it may even come down to the microclimate of a region. In any case, America was not out of the woods yet in 1920. Nurses couldn't be trained fast enough. Hospitals still had no empty beds. In January of 1920, Congress discussed whether to amend prohibition to allow doctors to prescribe whiskey. Yes, sign me up. Congress eventually landed on allowing whiskey prescriptions on a limited basis. Among businesses thriving, the National Casket Company commanded top prices for their product, citing the cost of lumber. People bent over backwards to obtain lemons as a dietary supplement. Poet Robert Frost's wife never seemed to break out of her feverish mind. Doctors believed the flu had done irreparable damage to her. Through April of 1920, the disease continued its late winter sprint across the country. But as the reprieve of warmer months approached, Americans had a political choice to make. In November of 1920, they'd vote for the President of the United States. Democrats and Republicans both had conventions in 1920, particularly in June, where they'd decide their candidates. For the purposes of narrative flow, I'll tell the red and blue stories simultaneously, even though the conventions were a few weeks apart. For Democrats, contenders weren't in short supply, but they were a little bit complicated. As we said, one of them was the incumbent president, Woodrow Wilson, who had not recovered from the disease but made it clear to his party that he wanted to be the candidate. Their convention would definitely be a slugfest. The Republican side had no clear frontrunner by the spring of 1920. They had a whole range of candidates. Republicans had originally wanted to run Teddy Roosevelt after the former president attempted to run a third-party bull moose ticket in 1912, but Teddy had died in 1919. Before you ask, no, Teddy Roosevelt didn't catch the Spanish flu, probably. He'd caught nastier diseases and as many jungle safaris and bear hunts. His life ended with a pulmonary embolism. Without Teddy, the Republican field was wide open. That meant it was up to Republican leadership to determine the Republican field of candidates. But the traditional leadership struggled. One of the kingmakers of the party, Pennsylvania's Senator Boyce Penrose, had been struck by influenza in November of 1919. But like Woodrow Wilson, 
Penrose's case lingered into the spring. Penrose simply could not gather his strength even after long months struggling with the disease. Penrose is a very cool character. On the fat side, with a mustache that looked a lot like Teddy Roosevelt's, Penrose served as a key figure in the Republican political machine in my home state of Pennsylvania. I didn't know much about him. No, I didn't know anything about him coming into this podcast, so it's neat to know some local history. Now, did you notice I said political machine? Yep. If you listen to Counted as Cast, now you know that Democrats aren't the only ones with 20th century political machines. Maybe a future podcast topic. Penrose had an acerbic way of doing things. The senator has a few quotes that are just great fodder for a political junkie like myself. Once, he was asked whether he would let a Utah senator, who was also a member of the sometimes polygamous Church of the Latter-day Saints, sit in a chamber during a committee hearing. Instead of kowtowing to his colleagues, Penrose gave one of the greatest comebacks of all time. I love this quote. Quote, I would rather have seated beside me in this chamber a polygamist who doesn't polyg than a monogamist who doesn't monog. End quote. How great is that? He also notably said, quote, public office is the last refuge of a scoundrel. End quote. Yeah, he is a pretty funny guy. As a Republican leader, Senator Penrose had to be nervous. He needed to be in the center of things to influence the process. Just when he needed his strength the most, he sickened again. His doctors called it relapse. Given that this all happened a century ago, it's hard to say exactly what that meant, but by now you're seeing the vicious cycle of the influenza virus. Doctors kept Penrose in bed in Pennsylvania, even while Penrose insisted that he would go to the Chicago Convention in June of 1920 if it kills me. His doctors told him that yes, it will kill him, and all Penrose could do was phone in his wishes to the convention. At the same time, another Republican figure who was expected to play a major kingmaker role in the convention, a man by the name of George Perkins and a noted Teddy Roosevelt progressive, suffered from nervous collapse, likely brought on by his battle with influenza. It had lasted him an entire year. Attacks of encephalitis, or swelling of the brain, harassed people for months and years after their illness. So there you go with the Republicans, they're leaderless, rudderless, and lost. Back on the Democrat side, Wilson wasn't the only giant throwing his ambitions into the ring. A man named William Jennings Bryant, another Democrat who had run for president three times before and wanted to try again, was throwing his weight around as well. Fourth time's the charm, right? Democratic leadership at their party convention had to block the ambitions of Wilson and Bryant. Wilson was the lamest duck in the world, but as lame as he was, he still had sway. Listen to this story. Usually people talk about vindictive mother-in-laws, but hear me out on this example of in-law betrayal. Woodrow Wilson blocked his own son-in-law, who was also happened to be a member of his own administration, from getting the nomination. That's how bad Wilson wanted that nomination, and it kind of shows how out of his mind he was at that point as well. As Democrat leaders sniped and squabbled with each other, an interesting figure emerged out of the fray. A woman named Laura Clay ran for president and even secured a few delegates, the first woman to make it to a convention out of either party, and the first to get pledged delegates. She represented a powerful movement discussed at the convention that year, namely women's suffrage. Women's right to vote had been under contention for years. Often, suffragettes overlapped with temperance advocates, creating a kind of moral tidal wave crashing onto American life. The suffrage movement gained new political capital in the latter half of the 19-teens. 
Believe it or not, some historians think that the Spanish flu ushered in women's right to vote. So many flu victims have been young men sent to war. In Europe, they met their death by bullets or the cytokine storm that caused rapid pneumonia and death among the younger infected. In addition, as a matter of course, the virus actually disproportionately affected men. Compared to women, over 175,000 more men died from Spanish flu in the United States alone. You probably recall the character of Rosie the Riveter, representing women who shouldered men's work during World War II. Well, a similar thing happened in the darkness of the influenza years. A labor force dominated by men became populated with women filling critical jobs. Women agitated for equal pay and often found it owing to labor shortages. The 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, allowing women the right to vote, passed in 1919, setting up the amendment for state ratification. Remember that three-fourths of our United States need to ratify an amendment to the Constitution to close the deal. That's an extremely difficult feat even in the best of times. When Laura Clay showed up at the convention, she had little to no chance of winning, but her presence represented the gravity of the empowered suffrage movement in America. Laura didn't go home a nominee for president, but she did secure women's suffrage as part of the Democrat Party platform. Just to give you the refresher, at a convention, each party sets down its decision on various issues, called planks, and forms them into a guiding document called the platform. Democrats made a clear statement by putting suffrage into the platform that year. The 19th Amendment was adopted by the states a month later, in August of 1920, and women would vote in the 1920 election for the first time in American history. Laura Clay had done critical work in representing women across the country. Democrat leadership eventually made an end run around Wilson and Bryant. The old leadership, sick and decrepit in the case of Wilson, a three-time loser in the case of Bryant, were thrown aside. Democrats nominated former newspaper editor and governor of Ohio James M. Cox for the presidential side of the ticket. They then nominated a young former assistant secretary of the Navy to the vice president's slot. The rising star's name, in that case, was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He shared a last name with the former Republican president, being a cousin a few times removed, and Democrats thought they might lend some familial luck to the Democrat ticket. With a central plank in their platform supporting the incumbent president's League of Nations, the Democrats had their candidates ready to go. Over at the Republican convention, uncertainty ruled the day. There had been no clear frontrunner and plenty of candidates to choose from. Even Henry Cabot Lodge himself was considered a possibility, though if I was a party insider, I would have said he was most effective in the Senate. The central discussion amongst Republican Party members was the opposition to entry into the League of Nations. Republicans made central an anti-League of Nations plank. I could bore you with the ins and outs of Republicans running for the field, but that's a lot of names, and none of them really ended up mattering that much. The dramatic result of the 1920 Republican primary comes from its opaqueness, not its transparency and meaningful votes. As the progressives and conservative wing of the Republican Party battled, no candidate escaped without lumps. A compromise was needed. The man who wasn't present at the convention, our favorite Pennsylvania machine politician who didn't mind sitting next to a polygamist that doesn't polyg, Senator Penrose, made a strong case for a so-called dark horse candidate named Warren G. Harding. He came a little bit out of left field, or right field, or some field. He was a newspaper man from Ohio, only recently involved in politics. Penrose did all of his influencing over the phone from his sickbed in PA. 
It would be some of the last work he'd do as party leadership because Senator Penrose would never really recover from influenza, being housebound until the fall and dead in 1921. Penrose, though, made the case for Warren G. Harding as compromise candidate. In pictures, Warren G. Harding has a stern face and large bushy eyebrows and an uncomfortable stare. He'd made his name in the print world as the editor of a paper, then segued that into politics and got a seat in the U.S. Senate. We'll get more into Harding's character later, but I need to say a word about how he was nominated. The Democrats had a weak president in the White House, and with all the shifting political allegiances, that compromise candidate was the perfect solution. The man who would later be Warren G. Harding's corrupt attorney general predicted the smoke-filled room that would lead to his boss being nominated. If you're not familiar with the idiom, a smoke-filled room refers to a bunch of powerful people gathering in secret conference to make decisions that affect everybody. Usually, tobacco is present. Well, nobody really knows how Harding's future attorney general nailed it, but I have to read this quote because it's too good to skip over. Quote, I don't expect Senator Harding to be nominated on the first, second, or third ballots, but I think we can afford to take chances that about 11 minutes after 2, Friday morning of the convention, when 15 or 12 weary men are sitting around a table, someone will say, who will we nominate? At that decisive time, the friends of Harding will suggest him, and we can well afford to abide by the result, end quote. Well, he nailed it. That's exactly what happened. That term, smoke-filled room, that actually comes from this event, which all happened in room 404 of the Blackstone Hotel in Chicago. Chomping on cigars, dead tired of the contentious convention, the party bosses made their choice. With running mate Calvin Coolidge, Warren G. Harding went out to take on Democrats Cox and Roosevelt. In the coming race, Harding got a lot of flack for being inexperienced. The New York press in particular seemed incensed by his candidacy. Living in 2020, I feel like I've heard this story before, don't you? You can't see it, but I'm winking right now. Harding had insults thrown at him by all the major papers, and I quote, Weak and mediocre. The flag bearer of a new Senate autocracy. And a very respectable Ohio politician of the second class. Ouch. Much of the race for the presidency involved maneuvering around Wilson's League of Nations. Would America submit to the treaty and try to achieve the president's dream of world peace? Or was it just a pipe dream, unconstitutional, and even a risk? Harding cast the election as a referendum on the idea of the League of Nations and spoke of its overreach. That meant Cox had to backpedal on a few of the more sensitive issues like that old gem about making war if allies were attacked. This only strengthened Harding's case. The Republican Party also revolutionized how candidates campaign. Many of the marketing and communications methods of the election of 1920 persist to today. This was the first personal photographs with candidates election. Think early selfies. They rolled out telemarketer advertising. Ads in newspapers and motion pictures were unavoidable. Any of this sound familiar? If you're in a swing state like mine in Pennsylvania, you'll get hammered by this stuff. Since this is a podcast about influenza, it's worth quoting from the speech that made Harding famous and possibly won him the election. It was actually a speech he gave before he became the Republican candidate, but was printed and repeated over and over again. It's simple, but it's clean. It resonates. Listen for the coded language about influenza. I actually have audio, but I'm going to have to read it to you again because it's 100-year-old audio. America's present need is not heroic, but healing. 
Not nostrums, but normal things. Not revolution, but restoration. Not agitation, but adjustment. Not surgery, but serenity. Not the dramatic, but the dispassionate. Not experiment, but equipoise. Not submergence in internationality, but sustainment in triumphant nationality. Quote, America's present need is not heroics, but healing. Not nostrums, but normalcy. Not revolution, but restoration. Not agitation, but adjustment. Not surgery, but serenity. Not the dramatic, but the dispassionate. Not experiment, but equipoise. Not submergence in internationality, but sustainment in triumphant nationality. End quote. Let's pick this apart. First of all, holy Toledo, that's a lot of alliterations. Obviously, you have the word healing. Clear influenza language there. Nostrums will be on the spelling bee, N-O-S-T-R-U-M-S. It means ineffective cures. Serenity instead of surgery is obvious. And the bit about equipoise versus experiment was clearly a shot at the League of Nations, which had never really been tried before. I also want to note that not revolution, but restoration is probably a shot at the 1917 Russian Revolution. This isn't the greatest oratory in the world, but I don't think it's that terrible. Around the time, however, Harding's speeches like this one were pilloried. None other than satirist H.L. Mencken thought Harding was a terrible public speaker. I'm being a little self-indulgent by reading this to you, but it's worth it because it's H.L. Mencken. Harding's speeches, quote, "...reminds me of a string of wet sponges. It reminds me of tattered washing on the line. It reminds me of stale bean soup, of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights." It is so bad that a kind of grandeur creeps into it. It drags itself out of the dark abyss of pish and crawls insanely up to the topmost pinnacle of tosh. It is rumble and bumble. It is balder and dash. End quote. Good stuff. Like the big New York newspapers, H.L. Mencken was pushing the idea of Warren Harding as an inexperienced, bumbling idiot from Ohio. I think the last part with the couplets rumble and bumble, balder and dash might even be a play on Harding's speech. Just a hunch. Harding's campaign slogan, which came from his speech, Return to Normalcy, was also trashed. People said that he'd made up the last word, normalcy, when he should have used the word normality. It kind of rolls off the tongue better. Harding has the last laugh on that one, though. Normalcy is used pretty commonly 100 years later. But if the big city papers and satirists didn't buy Harding, the public did. They liked his calm sensibilities. The League was unpopular. The people of America had suffered from a war in Europe that had killed and maimed so many. Why in the world would they want to sign up to help Europeans rip each other to shreds again? They didn't know it yet, but they'd be back in Europe soon. You can't blame them for trying, though. America had simultaneously suffered through a devastating plague. And even if you survived that play, you got to spend the rest of your life with pulmonary, nervous, and even psychological issues. America wanted to rest. Warren G. Harding blew out the Democrats, winning 60% of the vote in a landslide victory. The Democrats were only able to hold on to the American Southeast, the rest of the country going Republican. If America thought it would get a break by having a relaxed Ohioan in the White House, they were mistaken. At first, I'm sure that everything seemed like a... Uh, returned to normalcy. Peace negotiations with Europe went on, but Harding always seemed to be lagging. Allegedly, he had a lot more on his mind than a 
policy and international diplomacy in the wake of the worst war anyone had seen since Genghis Khan. Harding had drinking and womanizing on the mind. His ineptitude made him drink, and then the drinking slowed him down. He kept a mistress, or two. The economy sucked. Strikes in the anemic federal response to them upset unions, and the friends he appointed to various cabinet positions tripped over their own shoes. In January of 1923, just two years into his presidency, Harding contracted influenza. He never recovered and was dead by summer. After he died, his extramarital affairs came to light, and multiple cabinet members were thrown in jail for blatant corruption. Warren G. Harding is generally considered to be one of the worst presidents in American history. One good piece of news is that even though influenza struck down Harding, the long agony of the Spanish flu passed. The winter of 1920 and 1921 did not have the resurgence everyone worried about. So in conclusion, this podcast did not end up where I thought it would. More than anything, it turned into a story of human frailty. Spanish flu wanted weak hosts. That's exactly what it got. One of the four horsemen of the apocalypse is war. Another, in many interpretations, is pestilence. In 1918, we got two of the four, and the other two, death and famine, weren't far off either. A weakened humanity was the perfect breeding ground for the disease's demonic goals. It seems to me that this one-two punch made the 1920 presidential election feel, for lack of a better word, thin. People who would normally have been frontrunners weren't, party leadership suffered, and it all seemed more disorganized than not. A political outsider in Warren G. Harding made it all the way to the presidency while the Democrat powerhouse came apart. And then, well, it didn't go so well after that either. In this story, characters seem to stand tall and then get knocked out. Unlike World War I's balance sheet, with mostly young men bearing the burden of battle, influenza did not discriminate. It struck everyone from the common soldier to suffragettes to the president of the United States to the nurses treating the ill and everyone in between. It struck people from countries across the world. Whatever goals those people had, whatever aspirations, vaporized as they caught the flu. In researching the story, I was more cognizant than ever of the vulnerability of human beings and our society. That mural we were painting seemed to fade, the images less and less clear. In my era, in 2020, we have a ton of dystopian fiction to choose from. In those stories, society comes apart when emergencies threaten the lives of many. You'd think that this pandemic would have caused mass anarchy, that societies would have collapsed, the zombie apocalypse would have been on. Humans, though, live in a society accustomed to dealing with illness and death. In everyday life, it might not look that way. We are, of course, devastated when friends or family fall ill or pass away. The death of somebody can color your daily existence for years afterwards. However, human societies also have a remarkable ability to fill in the gaps left by friends, family, and colleagues. Call it resilience. Call it grit. The Spanish flu demonstrated that humanity can absorb a certain amount of stress. The individual doesn't necessarily thrive, but things do not fall apart. The center does hold. Estimates have Spanish flu killing 1 in 20 people on the planet. As a thought experiment, imagine walking through your normal routine and subtracting 1 in 20 people. Now out of the survivors, take some and give them permanent damage from the disease. Now it's maybe a quarter of people in your social group knocked down, dragged out. Imagine your family or your workplace getting leveled that way. What do you do? 
Do you despair? Do you stop caring for your family? Quit your job? No, you persevere. You continue on. There's work to be done. Demand needs supply. People need help. Kids need raising. The world needs you. This wasn't a world without sorrow and economic pain. Undoubtedly it was. I can't imagine living through that time. But the era also wasn't Mad Max or Escape from New York. Bank runs wouldn't happen for another 10 years during the Great Depression, and that really didn't have much to do with disease at all. Labor strikes and mob violence happened between 1918 and 1920, but it wasn't nearly as notable as hostilities in Europe, and those hostilities were really man-made. Humans make do. When Republican Senator Penrose couldn't raise himself out of bed, he spent his time on the phone raising hell. When Woodrow Wilson weakened, Henry Cabot Lodge got through his agenda. People win and lose because of the flu. One argument goes that women won because of the flu. But because there wasn't much rhyme or reason to who lived and who didn't due to the nature of the disease, it almost made the chaos more predictable in its unpredictability. It wasn't a particular group, ethnic, religious, political, taken out of the equation. This wasn't a pogrom. It was the people of your everyday life disappearing. You adjusted. You wanted it to be different, but you adjusted and took what wins you could. As I record this in 2020, 100 years later, the public is sitting on the edge of its seat from COVID-19. But while it's likely the worst plague in a century, I take solace in an idea. This is the idea. Humans have dealt with circumstances that seem impossible today. To quote Harding, given some equipoise and serenity, human beings will pick up the pieces. Of course, that all came from the drunk who spent his presidency violating the Volstead Act. So 100 years later, as we face down another pandemic, let's at least retain the freedom to have a few drinks along the way. Thank you for listening to the Tinderbox podcast and Outfluenza. It was a lot of fun to produce something that didn't involve tons of esoteric resources. <clears throat> Battle of Athens. <coughs> Yeah, I don't, I, I swear that's not coronavirus. A lot of this podcast was made possible by an interesting document I stumbled upon, a doctoral dissertation of a woman named Dorothy Ann Pettit. It was called A Cruel Wind, America Experiences Pandemic Influenza, 1918 to 1920, A Social History, published in 1976 for the University of New Hampshire. That document is where I discovered the illness of Senator Penrose, for instance, and the death of Henry Cabot Lodge's son-in-law, Major Augustus P. Gardner. The rest of the sources and Pettit's dissertation will be listed in the show notes of this episode. Thanks again, and stay well. And the year of 1918, God sent a mighty tide to men a thousand, all men and all Wait, I'm tired, I got done one, Jesus coming soon. Wait, I'm tired, I got done one.